0: to Alive and Powerful with Pastor Scott Morrison. Alive and Powerful is the radio ministry of Foothills Calvary, a fresh and growing fellowship in Lakewood, Colorado. We invite you to come and join us as we study the Word together, Sunday mornings at 9 and 11 a.m. We meet at 12344 West Alameda Parkway in Lakewood, just a few blocks west of Union and Alameda. For more information about Foothills Calvary, please visit our website at foothillscalvary.org. That's foothillscalvary.org. We hope you are blessed by today's message. Now, here's Pastor Scott.
1: Um, Let's get in the Word, but let's pray first. Father, thank you for your Word. Thank you for the freedom we have to be here in this place. I thank you, Lord, for each person that is here, Lord, and those listening online. Um, God, we're asking that you would speak to us uh, individually. You know where we're at. Um, You know where we are within the holiday season and and the struggles that we have. Um, Lord, would you just bring peace and direction. And Lord, even though this morning's message is not on Christmas, uh, Lord, would you speak to us through it. God, this is a heavy message today, but Lord, would you help us remember the hope that we have in you. So speak to us, Lord. Speak to those that don't know you. And uh, God, we just surrender this time to you in Jesus' name, amen. So last week, I'm um, grateful for Caleb and the team uh, uh, just taking care of things, and I got to hang out at Calvary Chapel, Cherry Creek, and uh, Pastor Matt and Dave, and they just, um, awesome, awesome church, awesome fellowship, and uh, they bought me tacos afterwards, so, you know, it was a good day. Um, but it was good to get away and just get fed, so appreciate these guys um, taking things on. Um, Jay, uh, K- Caleb took uh, the easy one. And like you said last week, I'll be back to throw down some judgment to you. Uh, And that's really what today is. So it's a little bit heavier, but I encourage you to stay dialed in and focused on the hope that we have. We're going to be in Revelation chapter 8 and 9 this morning. So we're going to cover a lot of ground um, this morning to get through those two. But they tie together, um, didn't want to break them apart. So we will start with uh, the trumpets, the first four trumpets, as the seventh seal is loosed. We're looking in Revelation 8, verses 1 and 2 first. When the Lamb broke the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. I saw seven angels who stood before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. Remember, the sealed scroll was introduced in Revelation 5, and the seals were opened one by one, up to the sixth seal in Revelation 6. We waited for the last seal to be opened, the contents of the scroll to be revealed, but we were given a pause in Revelation 7, the revealing of the 144,000, the great multitude of the great tribulation. Now the idea of a pause between uh, the sixth and seventh seals emphasized by silence in heaven for about half an hour, 30 minutes of silence. Uh, The worship and activity around the throne room was, was paused. A silence that is almost deafening, a a point where everybody takes a breath. And some say silence with a purpose that the the prayers of the saints and the cries of the martyrs could be heard. But most likely the silence in heaven is a sobering awe. It's caused by the understanding that the last seal was broken and the judgment was coming. I can imagine a, a heaviness that filled the throne room for 30 minutes. Silence. 30 minutes is a really long time. Depending on your context. If you get home today, if you've got a roast and some potatoes in the the crock pot and you have to wait for 30 minutes but you can smell it, ah, that's a long time. Because you're waiting for that meal. If I was to stop right now at the beginning of this message and I was just to be silent for 30 minutes, could we handle it? If I was silent for 10 minutes, how would we do? If I'm silent for 30 seconds, we get uncomfortable, don't we? We like the noise. (laughs) We like the movement and the actions. It's to, to remember to be still and know that he is God. The lights are never off in heaven they don't close at 8 o'clock. It's a place of constant worship, a place of constant activity. We saw that in Revelation 4, 8 through 11. Silence in that setting would seem like it's eternity. Jewish tradition states that there were seven angels who stand in God's presence, and based on these verses that we just read, it seems to be true. When we look at trumpets in the Old Testament, trumpets sounded the alarm for war. And those trumpets threw the enemy into a panic. Or sometimes trumpets were used to call an assembly of God's people together. They, they would sound the trumpets and the people of God would come together and meet. The seven trumpets will sound as God's battle alarm during the great tribulation. And there's the other angel with the golden censer in verses 3 through 6. Another angel came and stood at the altar holding a golden censer, and much incense was given to him so that he might add it to the prayers and all the saints and the golden altar which was before the throne. And the smoke of incense with the prayers of the saints went up before God out of the angel's hand. The angel took the censer and filled it with the fire of the altar and threw it to the earth. And there followed peals of thunder and sounds and flashes of lightning and an earthquake. The seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared themselves to sound them. Some see this angel as Jesus functioning as a mediator because of the Old Testament references to Jesus as the angel of the Lord. Others say it could be merely an angelic being because the specific Greek word for another means another of the same kind. And we've been talking about the cherubim, so it could be a, a cherubim. And prayer and incense together are offered and often associated in the Bible together. The idea is that just as incense is precious and pleasant and drifts to heaven, so are our prayers. So here, before anything happens at the opening of the seventh seal, the prayers of God's people come out before the Lord. And it's significant because the prayers of God's people set in motion the consummation of history. Your prayers are part of what is bringing this all into play. How so? You see, every time we pray, may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We're setting things in motion. Every time you pray personally, not my will, but your will be done. Or every time that you pray, come, Lord Jesus, come. Come. Our prayers are in that throne room. We are part of this as saints, as followers of Christ. Torrance says, the more potent, more powerful than all the dark and mighty powers let loose in the world, more powerful than anything else is the power of prayer set ablaze by the fire of God and cast upon the earth. 2 Peter 3, 10-13 indicates that there's a sense of which we can hasten the Lord's coming by our holy conduct and our godly lives. You see, in Peter's day, believers experiencing persecution were eager for Christ's return, the return to free them from suffering and oppression. However, this prophecy was not given merely for their relief, but to spur them on in living a godly life. An eager anticipation of the Lord's return should keep us living productively. And I think sometimes we dismiss that, don't we? Oh, the Lord's gonna come back. Oh, the, oh well, yeah, the rapture of the church is gonna come. Okay, cool. And then we go, no, we should long for it. We should be praying for it and waiting for it. It doesn't mean that we dismiss life and everything else that we're supposed to be doing, but it's looking forward to heaven where we have hope, where every tear will be wiped away and our bodies will be new. Knowing what lies ahead of us should move us to please God because we are going to stand before Him in judgment as well. So we should get things in order now in our lives. Amen? Amen. Here we see that we can also hasten the Lord's coming through prayer. Daniel asked for a speedy fulfillment of prophecy regarding captive Israel in Daniel 9 we should indeed pray revelations 22 20 even so come lord jesus come but i would also add to that prayer and i've said it often okay yes come lord jesus come but until you come empower us to do what you've called us to do in this season and this time let us be prepared to meet people at their point of need and to give the gospel message to them the question for you this morning then is how is your prayer life this even caused me to to pause Uh, the holy spirit brought conviction even to me i mean i pray i pray for you guys a lot like every day i'm running down the list and i'm praying but i'm not praying enough am i praying with passion and with expectation oh i need to pray with more passion more expectation that's the challenge to all of us we must be a praying church we must pray without ceasing keeping an open line of communication with god just because you say amen you didn't hang up the phone (laughs) keep that open line of communication okay god here we are and we're doing this thing today help me God, here I am. I woke up again. Would you you be with me today? I dedicate this day to you. May, May I glorify you today. Open up that line of conversation with him. And as you interact with people, pray with them before you part ways. Just pray, 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 pray. If you come and meet with me in my office, we're gonna start in prayer. Then we're gonna have a conversation. And then we're gonna close in prayer. Do that with every interaction that you have. Watch what God does and watch how he uses you in that. Our prayers are rising to God with the smoke of incense. They're being received by the Lord. Then the angel took the censer and filled it with fire, at the altar, and he threw it to the earth. As God's people pray for the resolution of all things, their prayers were touched with the fire from the altar in heaven. They were thrown back down to the earth, and all these things will not be resolved on the earth until judgment comes you see every time we pray for the peace of jerusalem we pray for peace on the earth what we're really praying for is the destruction of the earth the destruction of evil and wickedness the seven angels who had seven trumpets prepared themselves to sound them We've been meticulously reading through the book of Revelation, and we went through the churches, and then the seven seals, and one by one we saw the seals loosed, and and then at least through the six seals, and then a pause in chapter seven, and then the seventh seal is broken, the scroll is opened up, but it didn't happen immediately, but rather it set in motion the seven trumpets that would sound upon the earth. This is where we have to remember, and it's important as we, as we do this reading through the Bible in a year plan together as a church, it's important for us to be known. We talked about this when we studied the book of John. Be known as a person of the book. Be known as somebody who knows what God's word says and how to apply it to your life. Well, if you're going to be known that way, it means you have to spend time in God's Word, meaning that we should study it thoroughly. It should cause us us to consider how the seals and the trumpets relate to each other. We should be studying the book of Revelation, not just on Sunday morning, but every day. Okay, what is it that we read this week? How does it apply? What is it that we're looking for? How can I pray more effectively? Because we have to be a Berean. Don't just take my word or caleb's word or another pastor's word for it you dive into it and look at it what does it say some say that the seals of the trumpets are poetic and repetitive john describes the same events with different words and details in both the the seal and the trumpet judgments morris said this is typical of john's method he goes over the ground again and again each time he's teaching us something new there is more to the end then we can readily take in. Every series of visions brings out new facets of it. Others say that the seals and their trumpets relate to each other. Some believe they're sequential, and the seventh seal contains the seven trumpets, and the seven trumpets contain the seven bowls of judgment. Yet there's a problem with sequential approach. For example, the people of Revelation 6, 15, and 17, were they mistaken about Jesus' return? They don't seem to be. But if the trumpets simply follow in sequence to the seals, then it is a striking display of God's mercy in stretching out the end and allowing repentance. Since John brings a report from eternity, it's difficult to assign a chronological or sequential element to these judgments. It's important to emphasize that that they are real, and if their sequence is hard to pin down with certainty, it's okay. Simply saying, they overlay upon each other, and each one has a little greater detail. Regardless of how you look at it, these things are unpleasant. Again, this is not something that you want to be here for. Right? I've had friends, and I even had some some bands, Christian bands that I've listened to, that they think they're preparing for the Battle of Armageddon because they're going to be here through the Great Tribulation. You don't want to be here. I don't want to be here. Verse 7, the first sounded and there came hail and fire mixed with blood and they were thrown to the earth and a third of the earth was burned up and a third of the trees were burned up and all the green grass was burned up. Blood here might indicate the color or result of the phenomenon described here. We don't know if the hail and fire was red in color or if it brought forth red blood. But one way or another, this should be understood straightforwardly without escaping into a creative symbolism. Some think it might be Rome um, here, or uh, will take the, they'll take the brunt of this. They, they assign it to that time, the historical piece. Some, um, but we've got to be careful not to assign our meaning to these passages says that the truth is if the earth the trees and the grass do not mean earth trees and grass then no man can tell what they mean letting go of the literal significant significance of the record We launch out on an endless sea of sheer conjecture. Remember, as we go through the book of Revelation, we'll be talking about that. Don't get caught up in uh, the conspiracy theories and all these things that are out there. We can discern and see how, oh, God could do these things and how easy would it be to have one world religion and one world currency and one world government. But within that, don't get caught up in that. Stay focused on his word. A third of the trees were burned up. All the green grass was burned up because of the hail, the fire. All the trees and grass were destroyed. One third of the vegetation of the planet is burned up during the Great Tribulation. Have any of you ever driven through where a forest fire went through? Or maybe you had the opportunity to go up north when all those, what, they lost a thousand homes up there when that fire went through. Have you seen that devastation? It's powerful. Fire consumes everything everything and so that aspect of consuming one-third of all the vegetation is a powerful powerful image how will this happen many wonder if it'll happen through things that we know today right again we're assigning meaning to it a nuclear war um, fallout from a nuclear war uh, global warming pollution meteors just a simple war happening destroys many, many things. Napalm. These ideas are interesting and possible, but they're secondary. These thoughts should never obscure the essential truth. The reality is that God brings judgment. He's not a passive bystander. This is not nature taking its course. God didn't wind up the earth like a clock and just let it spin or unwind. God will use whatever method he desires to bring judgment. But people on earth know that these events are of God and do not think them to be merely natural disasters. They know that they're coming from God, and yet they're not repenting and not turning to him. The second trumpet brings a a plague on the sea. Verses 8 and 9 of Revelation 8, the second angel sounded, and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea, and a third of the sea became blood, and a third of the creatures which were in the sea and had life died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. Something like a great mountain burning with fire. A third of living creatures, a third of the ships destroyed. John carefully said that this is not an actual mountain, but it was blazing mass as large as a mountain, like a mountain. This is a cataclysmic event. Perhaps it's a meteor that that crashes into the sea and results in a great oceanic upheaval and residual pollution. Researchers today say that this sort of phenomenon has happened before. There's a crater in Arizona that's huge. I wouldn't want to be here when that thing hit. happened before in the history of the earth sometimes resulting in great upheaval and disaster here the result is that a third of living creatures in the sea died a third of the ships destroyed and the blood might be either the cause or the effect of the widespread death in the oceans of the world however it's also possible that the sea may be specific in reference to the mediterranean not in reference to all the oceans You see, the world of Apostle John, uh, the Mediterranean Sea was it. That was the sea that they knew. They didn't have knowledge of the rest of the oceans. So we're not sure what he saw. It's speculation. Speculation. It's common to take a great mountain. We could use that as a symbol for a nation that would be judged. And it's true that mountains are sometimes used as figures of governments or of nations. But in this context, the symbol doesn't make sense. What does it mean that great mountain is burning with fire? What does it mean that it was thrown into the sea? What does the sea symbolize? What are the living creatures in the sea? What are the ships in the sea? And what is their destruction a symbol of? All questions that that make us say that the best solution is to see them as a literal mass of land, probably something like a meteor or an asteroid falling into the sea, bringing ecological disaster And right now, even as we sit here, there's a myriad of asteroids and comets and things that are circling around the universe that scientists are watching closely because one could easily hit the earth. We must be alert to bringing more than... Uh, the Bible's meaning to what we read. So being careful, looking at these things, weighing them, remembering and understanding. His ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts higher than our thoughts. So we read them, we hold on to them, and we pay attention. The third trumpet brings a plague on the fresh waters in verses 10 through 11. The third angel sounded and a great star fell from heaven burning like a torch and it fell on a third of the rivers and on the springs of waters. The name of the star is called Wormwood and a third of the waters became Wormwood and many men died from the waters because they were made bitter. We could easily associate this with a comet or a meteor crashing into the earth bringing that disaster but God might have something else in mind. Clark said, some say the star means Attila and his Huns, or uh, Vandals falling on the city of Rome. Others, Eleazar, the son of Annas, um, spurning the emperor's victims, exciting fury of zealots. Others say Arius infecting the pure Christian doctrine with heresy, and so on and so on. It certainly cannot mean all of those things, probably none of them, but let the reader judge. So again, as you read the word, asking the Holy Spirit to speak to you and help you see and help you understand. Again, we can get lost in symbolism, so we have to be cautious. The name of this star is called Wormwood. It's a very bitter substance, a proverbial for bitterness and sadness. A third of the waters. Proportion of the ecological disaster stays the same. Each one of the trumpets, a third of the ecological system, is destroyed in this judgment. Then the fourth trump brings a plague on the heavens and the darkness on the earth, verses 12 through 13. The fourth angel sounded, and a third of the sun, and a third of the moon, and a third of the stars were struck so that a third of them would be darkened and by day and would not shine for a third of it, and the night in the same way. Then I looked, and I heard an eagle flying in heaven, mid-heaven, saying with a loud voice, woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth, because the remaining blasts of the trumpet of the three angels who were about to sound. This doesn't mean that God just hit a dimmer switch, just took, the, took it down a third. It doesn't describe one third lessening a light, but one third of the day and night were plunged into absolute darkness. Have you ever been in uh, Alaska during the winter? It's dark for a long time. But even then, it's not as dark as what this will be. Jesus even said in Matthew twenty four twenty nine, But immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from the sky, and the powers of heavens will be shaken. Woe to those who dwell on the earth because of the remaining blasts. The angels' woes were well-founded because one-third of the earth's population will die in the next three trumpets. The ancient Greek words for the angel and eagle are very close in spelling. Some ancient versions say that it's an eagle flying through the midst of heaven, making this cry. Some say it's an angel. So that's chapter eight, the first four trumpets revealing the depth and severity of God's judgment. Judgment directly impacting the means of substance, food, water, the ordinary means of comfort and knowledge, things that regulate or set rhythm to our days, such as daylight, just think how off we get thrown every time there's daylight savings time. That's just one hour. and we get thrown off by that, see, we rely on the sun rising and setting. We rely on it. We trust in it. We take things for granted. Mankind takes this whole thing for granted, believe it or not. We just simply expect these impersonal, perpetual forces to continue without interruption. And during the great tribulation, God shows his lordship through disrupting things that are natural, things that have a natural order, things that he created in the first place. Have any of you ever been in an earthquake? Got a couple. It's fun, wasn't it? Not really. Humbling? I haven't been in an earthquake. Um, I've been told we've had tremors here, and I'm like, I didn't feel it, so I don't know. Um, I haven't, uh, but I still have the earthquake preparedness car from Raul Reese's Church in California, and we're walking in the door, and it's a pastor's conference, and I'm in California, and they walk, and they have us this packet of stuff, and I'm looking through it, and there's this laminated card, what to do in case of an earthquake. I'm like, oh, exit stage left, I'm going home. Um, I still have that. Uh, I will say that when an earthquake happens, it humbles mankind. Because there's a realization that nature as you know it is not as reliable as they had thought. I've heard people tell stories about being in their own house and feeling like the house was just liquid. I don't know how that works. I've been in construction. I don't know how that works. The house doesn't fall down, but it's moving. It's very humbling these four trumpets humble men to their very core there's something else that we might miss here as we look at this because we think about the death and the destruction but god's mercy is still here in these partial judgments because it's only affecting one-third of mankind one-third these judgments are meant to warn those who are rebellious left on planet earth they can they do have time to repent before it's too late And right here in our text, God is sparing more than he is smiting. He's sparing more life than he's taking. As we move forward into Revelation 9, the fifth and sixth trumpets, the fifth trumpet brings demonic locusts from the bottomless pit. And that sounds awesome, doesn't it? Welcome to church Sunday morning. Glad you got out of bed. I'm glad you got out of bed. Revelation 9 verse 1 says, The fifth angel sounded, and I saw a star from heaven which had fallen to the earth, and the key of the bottomless pit was given to him. There were seven seals followed thematically, if not chronologically, by seven trumpets in their arranged order, and they're similar. The first four seals and trumpets presented judgments directed against the earth. These were the four horsemen bringing tyranny, war, and famine, death on the earth, the first four trumpets, ecological destruction, vegetation, seas, fresh water, the sky. The last three seals focused on heaven. A cry of the martyrs, cosmic disturbance, heavenly prelude to the trumpets. And these last three trumpets focus on hell in terms of the demonic are released. I saw a star from heaven which had fallen to the earth. The text shows us that the star is a person, not a literal star. And we have to take note that the verb tense here, fallen, indicates that he had already fallen, but who is this star? Suggestions have included Nero, a a fallen angel, an evil spirit, Satan, the word of God, a good angel, even Jesus himself. But in context, this star is best seen as an angel. Whether he's good or bad, it depends on his relationship to the angel of the bottomless pit in Revelation 9, verse 11. If the angel of Revelation 9-1 is the same as the one in Revelation 9-11, it is an evil angel, perhaps Satan himself. If it's a different angel, it may be a good angel sent by God to open up the bottomless pit for the purpose of judgment. The key to the bottomless pit was given to him. That this star has fallen makes us associate him with Satan or another high-ranking evil angelic being. But the fact that he is given the key to the bottomless pit makes us not want to associate him with Satan. The idea that Satan is the master of hell is foreign to the rest of scripture. Satan will be the victim of hell, not the ruler. And that's where we get that visual image, right? We've talked about that before, where we think Satan's sitting on a throne down there with a pitchfork in his hand. Sending out and doing things, that's not how it works. At the same time, we notice that the key is given to this being. It's given to a specific time for a specific purpose that furthers God's plan. This angel, evil or good, serves God's purpose, even if he doesn't intend to. This is a good reminder for us here right now today, and I've said it before as far as our politicians and leaders, God will use the righteous and unrighteous to exact his will. God is sovereign. God is in control of everything. He will use the righteous and the unrighteous to exact his will in his creation. Hi, this is Pastor Scott from Foothills Calvary. I hope the Lord is speaking to you through today's message. I wanted to just take a second and invite you to join us for worship services at Foothills Calvary. We meet Sundays at 9 and 11 a.m. at 12344 West Alameda Parkway in Lakewood, just a few blocks west of Union and Alameda. If you'd like more information on Foothills Calvary, please visit our website at foothillscalvary.org. Now let's get back to our study. I pray that the Lord will continue to speak to you by his Holy Spirit. Then we have the bottomless pit. If you have a teenager, you think you have found the bottomless pit at times. Uh, Many wonder where the bottomless pit is. The most straightforward answer is that it's at the center of the earth, because there one might say all is on top, nothing is on the bottom. It's the center of the earth. However, some think that the bottomless pit is uh, the nature of the pit is symbolic, but the abyssos is a prison for certain demons. You see that in Luke eight thirty one, Second Peter two four, and Jude six. This is probably the same place as the bottomless pit. M- more generally. This place is considered the realm of the dead. It's the same as Hades mentioned in Romans ten seven. Revelation 9, 1 is a good example of how the book of Revelation is sometimes wrongly spiritualized in its interpretation. Some commentators say that the word of God, the pit, the star is the word of God, the pit is human nature, and the lesson is that if the gospel is rejected, then horrors are released upon the earth. This far from the plain meaning of Revelation 9, 1. It's far from that. Then we have locusts from the bottomless pit. Revelation 9, 2 through 6. He opened the bottomless pit. Smoke went up out of the pit like smoke of a great furnace. The sun and the air were darkened by smoke of the pit. Then out of the smoke came locusts upon the earth, and the power was given to them as scorpions of the earth to have power. They were told not to hurt the grass or the earth nor anything green, nor any tree but only the man who did not have the seal of god upon their forehead and they were not permitted to kill anyone but to torment them for five months their torment was like that torment of a scorpion when it stings a man in those days men will seek death and not find it they will long to die and death flees from them so out of the smoke come the locusts it's a These are obviously not natural locusts. They avoid plants. They attack men like scorpions attack. The, The commentator, there's a commentator that says, a visual representation of the hordes of demons loosed upon the earth. The idea is that as part of the judgment of the great tribulation, God will allow demonic hordes previously imprisoned to descend upon the earth like a swarm of destructive locusts. They are not, as some have suggested, um, heretics, you look at the different commentaries, some people think of the Muslims, the Turks, the Jesuits, the monks. one side of it even says it's the Protestants that are unleashed. They are literally demons that are loosed at this time. However, there are those who have the seal of God on their foreheads, the hundred and forty four thousand and perhaps many more they 're protected. But no one else is. This is an inescapable judgment of God. You realize as a believer today, you are sealed. That was Pastor Matt's message that I listened to last week. Uh, We are sealed. We are protected because of our faith in God. That's the benefit of salvation. There will be those in the tribulation that will give their lives. They will repent to the Lord and give their lives to him, and they'll be protected they were not permitted to kill anyone, but to torment for five months. Anybody ever been stung by a scorpion? Yeah, they could do that every day for five months. Again, their purpose and period is expressly governed by God. God is in control. And the purpose of all this is to once again pe- bring people to repentance, as we see in Revelation nine twenty through 21. In those days, men will seek death, and they will not find it. They will des- desire to die, and death will flee from them. Death will offer no escape from this prolonged torture. Their power is described like the power of scorpions, the bite of a scorpion. And though it's extremely painful, it's rarely fatal. In those days, men will seek death, and they won't find it. They'll long to die, but death flees from them. The tormented ones want to do, even as Paul did in Philippians one twenty-one through twenty-four. For me to live is Christ to die is gain. But if I'm to live in the flesh. This will mean fruitful labor for me, and I do not know which to choose. I am hard-pressed from both directions. Having the desire to depart and be with Christ, that's far better. Yet to remain in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. You see, those in the tribulation, they desire to die, but for a completely different reason and result than what Paul was saying. Paul, for Paul, death led to an eternal blessing, but for these tormented ones, well, death is a leap from the frying pan into the fire. It's healthy for us to understand death as a Christian. Can you imagine longing for death without the hope of heaven? Well, we lost a family friend this week. It was pretty unexpected. He passed away. And uh, he had suffered a lot the last, this last year or so. And uh, God took him home. Today... He's breathing without struggle. <laughs> he's got a new body. He's a new person. He's a new creation. And he doesn't have pain. I mean, he's, there's no more tears where he's at right now. The family and his friends. But he's okay. We, we need to know and understand where we go when we die. And then it's going to be okay. The idea of death and as an escape is a demonic deception I've heard it more than once ministering to people and those who are struggling with addictions or, or things that have happened in life they, they just want to die I had a conversation with a young man a couple months ago that he just wanted to die he, he, he knew his, his girlfriend was in hell and he wanted to go be with her and most of you in this room know or at least through the news about the shootings that happened here in Littleton uh, at Columbine High School April 20th, 1999, 12 students, one teacher murdered, 13 killed, 24 wounded, and then the shooters committed suicide. The infamous murderers in Littleton, Colorado made a chilling home movies before their killing spree. Eric Harris and Dylan Klebold left behind a videotape document spelling out their motivation. In the last segment of the tape, it was shot the morning of the murders. Harris and Klebold were dressed and ready to go, They said they were ready for our little judgment day. Klebold, looking tense, said goodbye to his parents and concluded with this. I didn't like life too much. Just know I'm going to a better place than here. It's a great, tragic deception to think that one day on the day that you're going to murder many people, that you're going to go to a better place. There was no escape in death for either of them. I can even remember in my high school days, many of my friends who were partying, I remember hearing them say, man, I know I'm going to hell. Man, it's going to be an awesome party down there. Can you imagine how great it's going to be? It's such a wicked deception. It's not going to be great. You don't want to be there. And there are even many pastors within our own city and state that teach that hell is not real. Guys, hell is just as real as heaven. You do not want to be there. Now is the time of repentance to escape from sin. Now is the time to be restored so you can spend eternity in heaven. You do not want to spend one millisecond in hell. There is no escape. Now, the appearance of the locust in verses 7 through 10. The appearance of locusts was like horses prepared for battle. On their heads appeared crowns like gold. Their faces were like the faces of a man. Of man. Uh, their hair like hair of women. Their teeth were like the teeth of lions. Their breastplates, their breastplates of, like breastplates of iron. The sound of their wings like the sounds of chariots of many horses rushing to battle. They have tails like scorpions and stings and their tail is their power to hurt men for five months. There have been many attempts made to show that this is an accurate though poetic description of natural locusts this approach misses the obvious demonic connection why would god call them locusts if they're not literal locusts but demonic spirits who swarm and destroy like locusts among other reasons many locusts are an agent of god's judgment it's consistent with the old testament figures like passages in exodus 10 deuteronomy 28 first kings 8. 2 Chronicles 7, Joel 1 and Amos 4. Like horses, like gold, like faces of men, like women's hair, like lion's teeth. The the repetition of the word like indicates that something other than a literal description is intended. He's doing the best he can to describe what he has seen. The total impact of this picture is one of unnatural and incredible cruelty. There are those who, who suggest that these locusts actually describe something such as an uh, Apache attack helicopter of the Antichrist or the one world government. And that, I would say, if you watch the Left Behind movies, which I do not recommend, or read the books, um, you'll see that imagery. You'll see what they, they think and say and portray. So we have to be careful to not let Hollywood give us that visual. It's very speculative, and it doesn't fit all the details. Morris said that there seems to be no alternative to concluding that God, satisfying the age-long desire of those wicked spirits to possess bodies of their own, has created bodies for them, bodies appropriate in demonic appearance to the character of the demonic inhabitants. The reality is that no specific answer can be found to what or who these locusts are and to what the plague of locusts truly means. Regardless, we do see that there's going to be a period of time before the end that the wicked will be tormented by such a great demonic presence that it will be overwhelming. Exactly how it will take place remains unknown until history itself discloses it. Verse 11. They had a king over them, the angel of the abyss. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon and the Greek is Apollyon. It's another indication that these creatures are not literal locusts. The, the Bible tells us in Proverbs 30, verse 27, the literal locusts have no king if they advance in rank. These particular locusts do have a king. And a king that's given the name Abaddon or Apollyon, they both have the same thought. It, it's of destruction, torment, perdition, meaning it's a, a destroying angel, the angel of the abyss or the bottomless pit. Since this king of the locusts, and since he has the name Abaddon or Apollyon, it's obviously Satan himself or another high-ranking leader of the demons. And again, where's the bottomless pit? We're talking about the spiritual realm. The thought is, again, that it's at the center of the earth. But then the worst is yet to come. Verse 12, the first woe is past, and behold, two woes are still to come after these things. And the sixth trumpet, and an army of destruction, a voice from the altar, verse 13, the sixth angel sounded, and I heard a voice of the four horns of the golden altar, which is before God. You see, in the tabernacle and the temple of Israel, the golden altar was an altar of incense, which was a representation of the prayers of God's people. The four horns of the golden altar, these stood at each corner of the altar, and atoning blood was applied to the horns. And from these horns, John heard a voice, And in this, John recalled a repeated thing. The prayers of God's people play a large role in the end times drama that will unfold. So for us, yet again, another reminder of the importance of us spending time in fervent prayer. It not only draws us closer to the Lord, but God hears our prayers and moves on our behalf. That's us exercising our faith. God knows what we're going to pray. He just wants to hear us say it. That's us being faithful. The angels in their mission, verses 14 and 15. One saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, release the four angels who were bound on the great river Euphrates. And the four angels who had been prepared for the hour, the day, and the month, and the year were released so that they would kill one-third of mankind These four angels had no necessary connection to the four angels of Revelation 7-1. They might be the same, and they may not be. However, whoever they are, they are prepared for the hour, the day, the month, the year of unleashing of this judgment. Another commentator points out that most of Satan's angels are yet free, free being the, the principalities against what we wrestle against. But there may be some terrible offenders of high rank that have been bound until this time so this assumes that these are bad angels they may or may not be but very very evil angels nonetheless no matter what these are servants of a divine purpose the demonic locusts described earlier in this chapter were restricted to tormenting mankind but these four angels have been given authority to kill on an epic and massive scale in God's divine providence. It's hard for us, isn't it? It's where we do have to remember his ways are higher than our ways, his thoughts higher than our thoughts. These angels have a specific sphere of activity. They are to kill a third of mankind. They're only activated in God's timing, they execute God's will in God's timing. We are so quick to say, come, Lord Jesus, come, or to pray for the peace of Jerusalem. But it's in those prayers that we are asking for God's judgment and for the destruction of this planet. Remember, as we were in the book of Peter, this is not our home. We're just traveling through. Our home is in heaven. These angels were connected with the Euphrates River because the Euphrates is a landmark of ancient Babylon. It was the frontier of Israel's land as fully promised by God in Genesis 15. It was also on the boundary of the old Roman Empire, which will be revived under the Antichrist. The Euphrates, associated with the first sin in Genesis 2.10, the first murder in Genesis 4.16, the first organized revolt against God in Genesis 11.1, the first war of the Confederation in Genesis 14, and the first dictatorship in Genesis 10. Verse 8. You guys still with me? We're covering a lot of verses. You good? Okay. Most of you are. Description of the army led by these angels, verses 16 through 19. number of the armies of the horsemen, 200 million. I heard the number of them. And this is how I saw in the vision the horses and those who sat on them. The riders had breastplates of color and of fire and of uh, hyacinth and brimstone, and the heads of the horses were like heads of lions, and out of their mouths proceeded fire, and smoke, and brimstone. A third of mankind was killed by these three plagues, by fire, the smoke, and the brimstone, which proceeded out of their mouths. For the power of the horses is in their mouths and their tails, for their tails are like serpents, and have heads, and with them they do harm." Two hundred million in an army. Is this number literal? Is it symbolic? It's possible that the number is not to be taken literally, but it simply suggests that there's an army that is impossible to count and is greater than anything that mankind has ever seen. These horsemen are described in weird, grotesque, strange terms. This is a powerful picture of horror and destruction and literal demonic association. The army of the horsemen, does it speak of natural or supernatural? This is this an army of men or is it an army of Demons. If it's describing a natural army of men, that's it's a strange description. It might speak of modern mechanized warfare. It could be that John is simply trying to describe the modern machinery in, in only terms that he can. He's never seen anything like this. However, a human army this size has never been seen. Even in World War II, with all of the armies combined at the height of World War II, only 70 million men were in those armies. In 1965, China China claimed to have an army and a militia of 200 million, but that claim is doubted by many. Even if such an army was assembled and marched towards the West, it's hard but not impossible to see such an army killing a billion or more people, killing a third of mankind. But... I would ponder the thought that perhaps the safest interpretation is not to see this as a literal 200 million man strong army, but indeed a demonic army unleashed and invading Earth. This continues the idea of the demonic army, like Locust described earlier in the chapter. What then is the response of man? Last two verses, 20 and 21, the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands, so as not to worship the demons and the idols of gold and silver and brass and stone and of wood, which can neither see nor hear nor walk. And they did not repent of their murders, nor their sorceries, nor the immorality, nor their thefts. In general, mankind showed no repentance, even though these things were happening. Despite the presence of some pretty overwhelming signs and wonders, they had still chosen not to surrender. Instead, man continued with his idol worship, just in a business as usual sort of way. They continued their worship of demons, whether they worship his witting or unwitting. It's amazing to see how quickly things return to what is thought to be normal after some calamity, such as an earthquake. We're quick to forget God's lessons, even the lessons that come in judgment. Think about it in our own world. Every time there's a tragedy or an attack, churches fill up. Everybody's seeking God, but then it fades away. 9-11 happened. Churches in America started filling up. They stayed full for a few months and began to trickle back down. School shootings, world calamities. People turn quickly to church. They turn quickly to God, but then slowly and meticulously they go back to the way things were before. We must stay alert at all times. I would say even COVID. COVID hit and we shut down churches and we stopped meeting together and Everybody complained about it, but then we lost a lot of people walked away from church. We've got to stay focused. We've got to keep proper perspective. We need to be present while we have the freedom to do so. Even now in our own suffering and the struggles that we have today, we've got to keep our eyes on God. We have to keep our hearts set to serve him regardless of what's happening around us. Don't get fearful of what's happening in politics and leadership in our country or finances or health issues. Don't get caught up in it. Keep the perspective as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. God, I'm going to serve you no matter what. Start that now while you have the freedom to do so the list of the sins and striking accusations against uh, that are in this passage against our society today those things are still here in our modern world murders and sorceries um, sorceries taking of drugs like colorado legalized marijuana now we've legalized psychedelics sexual immorality that's not visible in colorado at all today is it how about thefts people who steal you know i get a report from this address of the top 50 crimes. <laughs> I get it on a weekly basis now because the daily basis was overwhelming. But you know how many cars? There's dozens of cars that get stolen around this, this place on a weekly basis. So thievery, it's there. You can see that the, the tone right now in the world that we live in, that tone is being set. That, that tone is being set for the rapture of the church and for the great tribulation to come. You can see how quickly things could change just in that instant. Because people are focused on themselves, they're not focused on God. So our exhortation today is to make sure that we are staying focused on our relationship with God. That we're staying focused on his word and we're diving in and we're working on that relationship with him. We're not going to be perfect, but there's a reason he has us here today. And it's a reason, again, as we get into Christmas, it's for you to be able to share hope and encouragement with your families. It's for us to, to bring hope to anybody that we come across on a daily basis. Amen? So we have hope. That was a heavy message, wasn't it? But we have hope. We have hope. So live in that hope. Don't get bogged down with everything else that's around us in the world. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you again for your word. And Lord, as we read this, may we be in awe. May we be still and quiet before you. May we truly be still and know that you are God. Father, would you... Would you give us a desire to pray as all of our fellow saints have done for years and continue to do. Give us that passion and and desire to pursue you in conversation. Thank you that you've given us hope through Jesus. And Father, as we pray, would you help us to admit our weakness and declare our trust in you and your wisdom and your strength. Father, remembering that we truly do stand the tallest and the strongest when we're on our knees because you answer our prayers in ways that are beyond our imagination. So Lord, help us to remember that all of us need to repent now and to believe in you. Thank you that in in that salvation that, that you safeguard us, that you protect those who believe in you when judgment comes. And one day we will all stand in front of you and and thank you that that you have extended grace and mercy to us that that we may be in heaven for eternity with you. Thank you that you're in control, that your divine providence is in place now and will be for eternity. We know that sin and rebelliousness already are running rampant within our society, within our world, and we continually do cry to you, come, Lord Jesus, come. But until you call the church to heaven and you bring judgment, help us to be present and help us to reach as many that we can before it's too late. I especially pray over us, Lord, as we engage with family and friends over Christmas. Let us bring hope to them that they may know you. With every head bowed and every eye still closed, I would ask you this morning, are you confident that you're going to heaven? Jesus said, whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. There are many people who refuse to believe in Christ because they don't want to give up control of their lives. But anything that we hold on to tightly, we're going to lose. In the end times, people would despair of the lives that they have fought so hard to keep. God does not desire for anyone to perish. But He will use even severe pain to get our attention, to urge us back to Him. The fact that all of us are sinners we all are saved by grace. That salvation is through Jesus alone. Romans 10, 9 and 10 says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. With the heart the person believes resulting in righteousness and with the mouth he confesses resulting in salvation. You can do that this morning. You can be sure that heaven is your destination by simply asking God for forgiveness and confessing that Jesus is Lord, believing in your heart that God raised him from the dead. You repent from the compromise and the sin that's been dictating your life. Simply repenting and believing. If that's you this morning, I would encourage you to pray something like this. It's a conversation from your heart to God's heart. Say, dear God, please help. I can't live like this any longer. I confess that Jesus is Lord and I believe that you raised him from the dead. And because of that, I can repent. Forgive me of my sins. I turn from them. Help me as I head in a new direction starting today. Fill me with your Holy Spirit and help me to serve you and honor you and to share hope with everyone you bring to me. In Jesus' name, amen. If you prayed that prayer in this room, I'd love to chat with you. If you prayed it online, to shoot me an email, scott at foothillscalvary.org.
0: has been Alive and Powerful with Pastor Scott Morrison. We hope you were blessed by today's message. Alive and Powerful is the radio ministry of Foothills Calvary, a fresh and growing fellowship in Lakewood, Colorado. We invite you to come and join us as we study the word together, Sunday mornings at nine and 11 a.m. We meet at one, two, three, four, four West Alameda Parkway in Lakewood, just a few blocks west of Union and Alameda. For more information about Foothills Calvary, please visit our website at foothillscalvary.org, that's foothillscalvary.org.